Before we get to the podcast this week, one of the partnerships I'm most proud of in my time at Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing is our partnership with Balm, Chevy Buick, and Clinton, Illinois. They are Central Illinois' number one car dealer, and the deal we have with them is amazing. If you buy a car or truck, new or used with Balm, you get a free lifetime subscription to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. I did some math. Let's say you're 30 years old right now and you're listening to this. You're going to live till, I'm going to give you a long life. You're going to live till you're 85. That's 35 more years, right? Uh, fi- wait, 55 more years. DMAC, how many more years is that? I got to do some math in my head. That's 55 more years. I'm not doing the ma- I'm not doing the math correct. Let me get the math correct. That's $8,250 value over the rest of your life. Not only is the free subscription an incredible deal, but I really mean this. Cover your ears, kids. Cover your ears. This is no bullshit. You will not find better people that do this than those at Bomb, Janelle and Will. It's a company that's been around for nearly 100 years for a reason, and they just treat people so well. My next car, and I'm ready. I'm ready for another new car, will be bought at Bomb Chevy Buick. Check them out online at Bomb Chevy Buick. That's B-A-U-M, ChevyBuick.com. We love our friends there. And even if you're not from Central Illinois, you should check them out. The lifetime subscription deal still stands. One other note before we get into the podcast, I feel like I have to say this because it's not being said enough. There isn't one, but there are two Dirt Late Model Dreams this year. Two in a four-day span, 127,000 to win on Thursday in June. Then two days later, 126,000 to win to make up last year's dream. Never in Dirt Late Model history has that kind of money been paid out in a 96-hour program Wednesday through Saturday, and you can watch all of that live on Flow Racing every lap, full coverage right here on Flow. Of course, DOD will have its typical editorial coverage and all the video highlights and interviews afterwards as well. Dirt Late Model Dream at Eldora, by the way, in front of a full capacity of grandstands, no less, coming up June 9th through the 12th. Watch it all live on Flow Racing. All right, let's get to it. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. I mentioned at the end of the Cody Summer podcast a few weeks ago, I had an idea for my next guest, but I wasn't sure if he would do it or not. But luckily, I called Rick Schwally up and said, hey man, we have known each other a long time. I'd like to do a pretty lengthy, honest, open conversation with you about dirt late model racing stuff, about Lucas Oil stuff, historical sports stuff. Would would you do that with me? And he jumped on it and he said, yes, Rick did not hesitate. And I really appreciate that. He didn't shy away from any of the topics that I threw at him that I think a lot of people might think or thought he might not answer. For instance, we talked about the World of Outlaws. We talked about our miniseries, Castrol Flow Racing Night in America, and his, you know, he has a few negative opinions about what we've done this year. Um, he was pretty forthright about that. And this hour with him went, hour plus, it's 90 minutes, uh, went very well with him. And Rick is typically, I don't know if I'd say he's a guarded guy, but he's a guy who's sort of watching what he says and how he acts because of his position he has to. And I'm not saying he went like full Joe Rogan on this Rigsby report, but I think you're going to listen to this 90-plus minutes and not only learn more about him uh, than you've ever known, but you're going to say, wow, 
he talked more than I thought he would about things that are kind of taboo. And that's what I was hoping for. So I think you're really going to get a lot from this interview with the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series director, Rick Schwally. A few things before I get to Rick. I kind of figured we'd mostly be back to normal at most dirt tracks this year by the spring. What I did not see coming was Eldora being 100% capacity for the double dreams coming up in a few weeks. Obviously, and rightfully so, Tony Stewart's track, you know, they aired on the conservative side last year. So I thought it might take them a little bit longer to get into the full capacity zone. But bam, as the pandemic starts to slow down and get closer to the end than the beginning, we are staring at two $120,000 plus dreams in 96 hours at Eldora with no fan restrictions at all. There is no more fun of a track on the planet than Eldora when the atmosphere is electric. And just imagine the pent-up Eldora frustration of not attending for a full year, just bubbling over in June. It caught me off guard. I wasn't ready, I don't think, to go from 400 people on the property uh, last September to 20,000 plus the next time I go back here in a few weeks. Buckle up the dream. I think it's going to be unlike any Eldora event in recent memory. J just the vibe there is going to be very surreal here coming up in June. One more quick thought. One thing I think everybody wants to keep an eye on, and Rick Schwally actually touches on this in the podcast today, there's been plenty of whispers, but I keep hearing guys over and over saying, drivers and crew members, Man, parts are hard to get right now, meaning guys are struggling to get parts for their race cars. I'm hearing that's spilling over into other areas of the sport as well. Maybe tires are a lot harder to come by. We've already seen what the fuel shortage in the South did to a pair of Lucas Oil races earlier this year. I can only imagine what a parts shortage on a larger scale would do, especially at the wrong time, if it's during Crown Jewel season or something. I think I've seen it slightly creeping in already with some guys sitting some races out uh, because of it. And I think some guys knowing there is so much more racing this year, they're having to be a little choosier on parts and tires as they get a little bit harder to get. I don't know that this is a warning as much as it is. We all need to be cognizant and aware that we could have a problem shaping up here that I'm not sure we're totally prepared to deal with is racing really ramps up in the next three months. I'd hate for it to come, like I said, middle of July or August, and those races have 38 cars at them because of something like this. Uh, these things typically have a way of working themselves out, and I think we'll end up okay. But I think I've heard enough from enough important people now to realize, eh, we need to pay attention to this, what, what could happen in the coming months. Let's go ahead and get to Rick. My first knowledge of Rick Schwally was as one of the best dirt late model photographers in the country, a guy who really in the late 90s and early 2000s was, you know, kind of pardon the expression, but 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 can't miss TV when it came to checking out his images. I, I remember Rick's old website. I remember navigating it to it after big race weekends. And for my money, he really was the best in the country. So it's been pretty cool to watch that ascension from race fan to photographer, to the official Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series photographer, to now the race director, the series director, excuse me, of arguably the biggest dirt late model series the country has ever seen. That is a true pay your dues, rung by rung success story that should be applauded. And we will talk about some of that with Rick today, but also many other things as he joins me now on episode 18 
of the Rigsby Report. Rick, I think the first question is for sure the most important one I'm going to ask you today. I emailed you before we really knew each other. This was back in 2006. I sent an email to your website requesting access to some images I was hoping to use. This was pre-Dirt on Dirt. I was working at NBC in Madison, Wisconsin, and you, I'm just going to say it, you blatantly ignored me. You never emailed me back, and I am still slightly holding a grudge for that. Let's just go ahead, Rick, and get that formal apology out of the way now. I've been waiting 15 years. I'm ready. Let's go ahead and get the formal apology out of the way for that snub. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I I figured that was probably just another guy looking for something for nothing. And (laughs) there's, at the end of the day, you probably got... uh, probably going to have somebody that's listening to this podcast is going to think, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one that he's ignored. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, I went back to look for it, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So, so we, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't find it at all. The email, I, I, I have a lot of old stuff. I still have a old Yahoo account that is nothing but the spam <laughs> junk. And I went looking in there thinking it would be there. It's not there. So I'm, if I could have found it, I would have. I would have replied just out of funness. So I, I would have liked that because I want. It was like an Allegheny County image I was looking for from the Rock or something like that. So I would have loved if you had sent me like a Chub Frank image from 2006. Is what I was looking for. I will accept the apology because you and you did go look for it. So let's call it even. There is that. Is are we good there now? Yeah, I'm okay with it, yeah. Okay, all right. As long as you're good. I'm good. Uh, and by the way, for those of you out there that Rick is ignoring your email, I feel your pain, and feel free to stop me at the races, and we can talk about how he's abused us at some point. <laughs> so I uh, I had Dustin Jarrett on last week or a couple weeks ago, and I joked with him, hey, you know, I don't always start these interviews with these kinds of questions, but I think it's appropriate for you the same way I started with him. G- give me your background, Rick. I know a little bit of this, but I want the audience to hear it where you grew up, how you got into racing. You know, has that always been a family thing for you? Kind of give me the 411 on the Rick Schwally story, if you can. Sure. I uh, I grew up in Georgetown, Ohio. I went racing at Florence Speedway and at Brown County Speedway, a real small track in Ohio. Okay. It's no longer there. But um, I went to those places with my dad, and we, we met friends along the way as we were traveling. You see the same characters every week. <laughs> my brother would go quite a bit back then until he got old enough to where he had to start paying to get in, and that was the end of him <laughs> going. So I um, mowed yards and stuff when I was young, before I was 16, and then, and I'd save my own money to go to the pits and and uh, uh, enjoyed enjoyed the heck out of it. I got a lot of fond memories with me and my dad camping at Florence and stuff. And heck, we were only an hour away from home, but we'd still go over there and camp for the big shows and and stay on the grounds and all. So uh, those were good days and good fun. And and uh, uh, beyond that, I, I guess um, as, as I got a little older. Uh, I missed my high school prom. Uh, my senior prom was I was at Brownstown Speedway for an Indiana icebreaker, I believe. So it, I'm pretty sure it was muddy probably there when we were there for that of one. Course, of course. The only way it was. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of my background before I got into photography. Photography started with with me just wanting keepsakes from the events. So I Started at Pinsboro at the DTWC in 1992. It was the first race I took any pictures with with a 110 camera. And uh, I took some pictures there it just in the pits just for keepsakes. And it just it kind of snowballed from there. I uh, got more and more involved in that and nicer equipment along the years. 
you know, I was actually going to kind of ask you that, you know, when, when, do you remember the moment you started taking pictures and sort of the follow up to that? Do you remember the moment when you got good at taking pictures? Cause I'm assuming you, maybe you were a prodigy, Rick, I don't, you, you know, my stuff that are the stuff I always looked at of yours was excellent, but do you remember the first moment you picked up a camera and then how long was it till you were pretty damn good? Well, uh, yeah, it, that first race was the DTWC in 92. Uh, with a 110 camera, just some pit pictures, just uh, walking around the pits. Um, it wasn't until 93 or 94 I started taking some pictures with 35 millimeter film, and it wasn't long before I got started with that. I got an email from James Essex because I was just posting them to my website. I had a flatbed scanner. I was scanning those things wow. in on and posting them to uh, a tripod website, that free web space. <laughs> And, uh, uh, it wasn't long after that, I got an email from James Essex and he was promoting Brownstown at the time and asked if I, if I could, or if he gave me credentials and if he could use some of the images and, and I didn't even know what the word credentials meant. I didn't know what any <laughs> of that. And, and before long I realized, you mean I, I get in free for it and, and do I heck yeah. So that was great. So, um, the mid nineties was, was not a lot of on track stuff. It wasn't until, 96, 97, that I started taking pictures of the cars on the track. And and that was quite a learning curve, and mainly because the equipment I had was junk, and I had no experience at it. I was just pure amateur. And then um, it was probably late 90s, I think 98 or so, when I got started taking pictures and sending them to newspapers and magazines and stuff. And that was behind the wheel was probably the first one uh, – that I was sending, it was a weekly newspaper of Sam Holbrooks, and I can remember sending pictures. And uh, National Dirt Digest was soon thereafter with that. Mid American, Racing News, um, a lot of a lot of time back then doing all that. You would take pictures and write the captions out with a neat pen on the back of the pictures, <laughs> and then I'd have FedEx envelopes on Monday after I spent one hundred and fifty dollars developing all the stuff and sending off the envelopes in the FedEx form to to each of the newspapers and then they would scan those things and use the captions. And that's where all that stuff came from. So it was, uh, uh, kind of a, a time grueling job. And then, then you'd work on the website. So it was, it was a lot of dedication there. No money. And no, nothing you're losing all, really. money probably, right? You're not, you're literally, you're not, not, not only are you not making money, you're losing money at that time in your life on photography. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember when I really got started to get paid for it, but it never ever like anybody that's a photographer. I have all the respect for them because I know better. They're not nobody's making any money at it, <laughs> and and I I spent, uh, you know, it was probably to ask when did I get good at it. It was probably not till two thousand and I don't know two thousand two is when I got my first digital camera. I shot a Davenport Speedway. I was actually at a funny story to that as. I bought the camera. I was so nervous about spending $5,000 on it um, that when I bought the camera, I took in my camera bag with my big flash and all that stuff to make sure it was all compatible. And I was in Columbus, Ohio, and I had Paul Fay and Vince Dubois uh, that was helping us with yeah. the Star Series. And we went, uh, they were with me. And then we went from there to the Summer Nationals race at North Vernon where Wendell Wallace's truck burned oh, down. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that was the first day. That was the day I bought the camera, the first digital camera. So are those and photos of Wendell's got, hauler? Are those you, Rick? Are those your photos with the day his hauler is burning yeah. down? Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. 
and, and that was digital and, and that was my first digital race and the pictures aren't that good because I didn't know what I was doing with that thing yet. And then the very next night we went to a, have a Tampa race at Davenport, Iowa and uh, had a lot better images there. That was 2002 in June. And then uh, uh, we raced the Stars race at, at LaSalle that next night. And then both series went to Cedar Lake that weekend, Stars and Have a Tampa. And I was at both of them there. So uh, that was my first weekend with digital. Uh, that was with Nikon's first generation camera, which was a Nikon D1H. And then the D2 camera come out. I bought one of those. That was the worst thing I ever bought. <laughs> it was not a very good camera model. And then uh, I struggled through it for a few years. And then I forget what year I bought the, the D4 series cameras that I had. And those were, those were phenomenal. They were game changers. So, um, when I got that equipment, I really invested in all the lenses and expensive stuff. And I had, I had, it, it stuff's like going in a race car. You, you want to be, you, you want to have the best motor or you want to have a motor that's good enough to race at a weekly show race, or you want to have what's, you know, what the look soul guys have got. So it's kind of camera equipment really resembles that in a lot of ways. Uh, you can, you can fully invest or you can partially invest and, I fully invested and had when I when I finished doing it, it was probably about thirty five thousand dollars worth oh, of equipment. <laughs> Were you with Ashley, your wife, at this time? And how dissuading was she of you of these thirty five thousand dollars worth of purchases? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> skipping a few steps of my background. So after uh, I graduated high school in ninety seven, and I went through an electrical apprenticeship to become an electrician, and I met Ashley at. West Virginia Motor Speedway in 2000 at a uh, Stars, or it was at the DTWC. I had a friend that was going to get me involved into, uh, or I was going to be the Stars photographer in 2000 at the 99 PRI show. Rick Gross told me that he would pay me $100 a night and pay for my expenses for his travel <laughs> to do all the races. And I thought, man, I've hit the mother load here. This is going to be great. <laughs> And uh, so I, I go to do those races, and I have a really good friend that was going to do them with me, and uh, he ended up committing suicide that winter about three weeks before I was leaving for East Bay. Mm. And that was a really dark time in my in my life there. Uh, I was pretty lost doing that all without without him. And um, racing was my coping method, and I did 88 races that year uh, just to keep my mind off of that. And uh, Courtney Cleveland was running for Stars Rookie of the Year. Wow, there's a name Steve I haven't Case heard. Was, I haven't heard that name <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> and Steve Casebolt was running for Rookie of the Year that year. And they were my age, both of them, um, same age as I am. And and I got to know them while I was traveling with Stars and, and became really close friends with Casebolt uh, those years that year and like i said i did a lot of races uh ended up traveling with him a lot since he was in close proximity to where i was at and i was doing it by myself anyways traveling so uh became tight with him and then met my wife um ashley that winter or that october of 2000 at the DTWC, we went on our first date in November. I was talking to her on AOL Instant Messenger. For those <laughs> old enough to remember that. Better do the noise it would make when you messaged somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, uh, I bought her engagement ring in February, four months later. So things moved fast, and 
um, in 2000. That would have been 2000 uh, or 2001 in February. Uh, we got engaged and we didn't get married till 2002, October 12th, 2002. It was, I, I relate everything to a race night, I guess, but uh, I, I have a hard time. I don't have a hard time forgetting my anniversary because uh, <laughs> I was a stars guy then, and and Chubb Frank won the won the have a Tampa shootout at Dixie at Dixie Speedway yeah. that night. So uh, I have a way of remembering that one, I guess. You know, <laughs> so. you, you mentioned a, cu- a couple of quick historical things there. I was at both those Davenport and LaSalle races in 2002. Berkey won the first night. Earl Pearson won at LaSalle. Just an incredible race the next night, I remember, in 02. Also, by the way, you mentioned the Dirt Track World Championship, Rick, in 92. I, I, I've been look- I'm looking it up while I'm here on the website. I know Ronnie Johnson won that year in that famous paint scheme that he had. How about the top six that night, Rick? Ronnie Johnson Freddie Smith, Donnie Moran, Chubb Frank, Billy Moyer, Larry Moore. Talk about a night to start taking photos. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty famous event to pick your camera up for the first time at the 92 DTWC. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably more fascinated with the older images that I have um, yeah. when I get to look at some of them like that than I am the later stuff. I, uh, any of it is is kind of like a history time frame of of our sport. So I I enjoy that quite a bit. I enjoy looking back at what we did and where we've been, and and um, that stuff's really valuable. Uh, you know, anytime you want to reminisce about any of it, it's it's kind of nice to be able to reflect on it. You obviously now, like I said, you, I love that background stuff too. And and shit, I could talk photography stuff with you all day and just those early days. But you know, obviously, you've ascended now to the Lucas Oil Late Model Series director position. And there's a lot of early Lucas Oil stuff that I want to dive into with you because this, to me, is some of the most interesting stuff in the history of the sport. So, obviously, I had Doug Bland on. He was one of my first guests on the show. He has that entire Goodyear situation in 2004. Of course, the World of Outlaws are born out of that and their alliance with Hoosier. They come out with the Dirty Dozen in 2004. But at the same time and more quietly, within a year of that, people kind of forget in essence, Lucas Oil was born at right around the same time in 05, sort of that winter of 2004 after the Extreme Series folded into 2005. And people also don't realize you were literally on the front lines of that, Rick. You know, I think you only recently become series director, so people kind of, those that know, know this isn't true. But you've been around this game a long time. I don't want to botch the Doug Bland, Lucas forming, extreme folding story. You were on the front lines of it, Rick. Tell us about that winter of 04 into 05. You've told me this story before. It's absolutely fascinating. The audience will love us. Just take us through that, Rick, and how instrumental you were in making this whole thing happen. (laughs) Well, yeah, and to set that up, before Lucas came about, so I was the stars, the Renegade Dirt Car, because it went from Renegade Stars to Renegade Dirt right. Car Series. I was with that from 2000, the 2000 season, 01, 02, 03 season. And then at the end of the 03 season at West Virginia Motor Speedway, I can recall Doug Bland and Rick Gross being together. We were co-sanctioning our race. That was the first time we ever did one together. We had been, we had been with. Uh, like Cedar Lake, for instance, in 02, we did the Friday night of Cedar Lake. They did the Saturday night. But it was always one a trade-off back and forth kind of thing. We even did that at East Bay quite a few years back and forth for six nights. And and that race in 03 at West Virginia Motor was the first time we did 
a co-sanctioned race. And at the conclusion of that weekend, I was hearing rumors that Doug was buying the series from Rick. And sure enough, all that happened uh, right as PRI got started. And uh, that would have been the 2004 PRI, right? So or, it's 03, no, it December 03, yeah. right, yeah. And and I'm always a I've always been a team player kind of guy. When I'm on a team, I'm on the team. Like like and, and I was a stars guy. I was I was I wanted to see our guys win. I wanted I wanted to uh um I, I had a lot of fondness of all those racers that raced that, that those tours those years and then when we got bought out by Doug, I was on that team then, you know. So um a lot happened that year when the World of Outlaws was formed and because of the Hoosier stuff and, and the Dirty Dozen was born and all those racers picking a side of where they went, all that is what it is. But yet uh, I stayed with, with the Habitant or with the UDTRA uh, Stacker 2 deal and I was with Doug and, and the Goodyear year that whole year. And you could we could do a whole podcast just on that <laughs> alone, but um, that whole season. But and the biggest part, that the biggest, probably the biggest takeaway that sets us up for my future with Lucasol was I was doing, because I had images of all the races, and Doug was incredibly shorthanded, I was doing on the side posters, advertising posters and flyers and things that we were using for the Habitat, or the Stacker 2 races um, that Doug was doing. And so I was sending those things to the promoters. So I got to know a lot of the promoters that year that was on part of that schedule. And, um, from that, I also learned a lot about the marketing side of, of how our sport worked. I, le- I learned a lot about the promoting side of it. I can recall, uh, July 4th weekend, uh, that year, uh, which I've, I've spent July 3rd since 2000, I've been at Muskingum County Speedway, but, July 4th weekend of that particular year, the third was at Muskingum. I think the second was at Atomic Speedway. It was the MKC Raceway. And then I think we went to uh, uh, Attica, and then we finished it at at um, Wayne County. And the Wayne County event was significant to me because that was a race that Doug was promoting. He at least the racetrack. And I got to know all the financials behind all that in that event. I got to know how what his formula was the Lisa racetrack, what he was paying the track, uh, how much of the track staff he depend on. But I was involved in all the advertising and the promoting side of it. I handed out flyers at the, and I can't remember the name of the racetrack, Lake County or Lake Lakeville or Lake City or something like that. It was right there <laughs> in, in middle uh, central Ohio there. And I was there handing flyers out as people were leaving the racetrack. Um, Doug had Casey King driving one of Ray Cook's cars right there. And um, Casey Kane was was uh, you know one of her higher times of his career in NASCAR at the time, so it was a big draw. And that event, we ended up promoting that event, and all of Ashley's family ended up uh, doing being all the ticket takers at all the gates. And uh, I knew what the crowd sizes was, and and how it profited, and I just like learned a lot at that event. And he did a couple more events during the year. And, so by the end of the year, that year, I had a pretty good idea of some of the do's and don'ts, and Hannah had got a pretty good idea of all the all the racetrack promoters that was with his schedule, and and really knew the race teams very well. That was part of that season. So 
that season, those guys banded together because, uh, you know, you picked a side. You either picked the Hoosier side or you picked the Goodyear side. And when they picked a side, they were part of that side. And so that was a close-knit roster that year. So got to know those guys really well. And that set up that 04 PRI show um, in, in that December of 04 when we went there. And they that, had, the, correct me if I like, so the Outlaws had had the Dirty Dozen season was 04. So you're headed to the 04 PRI show after that 04 season. And, and the Outlaws have run the Dirty Dozen that year, correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, so the Dirty Dozen has, has, has already been in existence for that season. I was with the Goodyear Extreme season, and we did a whole year. Um, right at August of that year is when UMP bought out Doug Bland, and um, that was with, uh, man, I think it was Kenny Sargent, and, or, I'm sorry, Bob Sargent and Kenny Schrader, and um, Petroff was involved in that. And then that all was later sold to Dirt Motorsports, which later became World Racing Group. And uh, the funny story on that was, so uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and set up the PRI, and then I'll tell you what happened after the PRI, yes, the funny please. parts of that. So so at PRI that year, we went to that, and at that point, that was right when uh, Dirt Motorsports was taking it over from Dirt Car, from, from UMP. And they weren't going to pay a points fund, and there wasn't going to be a banquet, but there was a banquet scheduled, and um, we can't, we didn't know what, what lies ahead. So I texted our race teams and said, let's meet over at the Hyatt and atrium at the lobby there and just talk together for a minute. And I was expecting 10 to 15 people and there was like 40 to 50 people <laughs> there. And, and I, at this point I've never spoken in front of people or anything. So I was really shy and backwards with all that. And then we get into this. Uh, meeting. I can remember Shane Clanton being there. I can remember Carl Grover being there. I can remember uh, um, Earl Pearson. And uh, I mean, our, our whole season, our roster was there. So I just basically spoke up and said, guys, we don't have to bend over backwards for that. We can go figure out something else. I, I said, together, you guys, if we band together, we'll we'll put a schedule together. We'll, I, I know most of the racetracks. We'll work on putting this together. I remember Carl Grover speaking up and says, yeah, I'm on board with this. And and uh, somebody mentioned, what about that NARA deal? They had a few races, uh, maybe talk to them. And so we left that meeting, and I had Wayne Castleberry with me, and we went into uh, back into the PRI show. And at that time, the RCA Dome was there where the Indianapolis Colts played, and they used part of the floor of the dome. Uh, for rigs and other overflow of, of uh, you know, vendors or, or people displays or, you know, what I mean, the, the different uh, manufacturer displays that were on display there. So we went into the dome, and that's where, where Spencer Wilson and the NARA tour was set up at inside there. And uh, I just basically went up and approached them and said, look, I think I got something you're going to need. You got something I need. Let's go talk. So, uh me and him and, and Wayne Castleberry, we went up into the, I think it was row three of the grand, uh, of the stands inside the RCA dome there and uh, sit there for a couple hours talking this out that I thought we could, I can bring you some racetracks. I think we could put this together. Um, 
he had some sponsorship through Lucas Oil already, and he had a television package with Masters Entertainment, which is a television production crew out of uh, Bristol, Tennessee area. So we left that meeting, and I was going to quit my job as a full-time electrician then and go back home and get my affairs in order, and then we were going to make a go at this racing thing that I wanted to be involved in all my life. So I went back home, um, living, <laughs> living with Ashley's grandparents in their basement of their home. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, cause why not? Right. So we, uh, when I moved to Cambridge after we got engaged, I lived in a one bedroom apartment in town off of, uh, by, uh, Courtney Cleewell's parents owned a Ford dealership in, in Cambridge. And, uh, they had a house right off the edge of the property, and I lived in a one-bedroom apartment in that house. And uh, and then Courtney lived upstairs with Bob Daughtery that ended up working for uh, still with Ray Siever. Um, got to know those guys really well, obviously, as we were neighbors there. And then uh, they sold the dealership, and soon after the dealership changed, um, they decided they were going to tear the house down. And Ashley and I, after we got married, like two months after we got married, got an eviction notice that we were going to be out of a place to live. So we moved in <laughs> with our grandparents. And so at the time of quitting my electrical job to go do this uh, racing thing full time, I took a pay cut of about 50 percent. And oh, instead I was going to go go full time racing and we were living in our basement and I was doing it all from home. So I was there day and night at their house in their basement <laughs> and, uh, Ashley was in college to be an accountant and work in days at us bank, uh, uh, just at, or in the evenings at us bank till closing time and the weekends, of course. So, um, it was not a not a welcome sight, I don't believe, when I said I was going to do this racing thing and, and, the Lucas, and quit my job. Rick, the Lucas piece of that is that Spencer, you mentioned the NAR, NARA deal. He, in 2004, he kind of had like that 10 race series, I think, in Shannon Babb. There's always a debate, is Shannon Babb technically the first Lucas Oil champion? Because it wasn't Lucas Oil, it was Lucas Oil sponsored in 04. He only had like 10 races. In 05, when you guys... You guys didn't really become the Lucas Oil Series until 2005. The, the the PRI meeting you're talking about is 04. 05 is when it became, after Speed Weeks, I think, right? The Charlotte, the Colossal or whatever was the first official Lucas Oil race. Is that right? Mostly right, yeah. yeah. So so that time frame, we went to the PRI show. All that happened. I left there and said I was going to get involved in this racing thing. Um had to blow up with the family on both sides of our family. <laughs> this wasn't the right move on our career, so career path. And so I started working for Spencer for $500 a week, a $26,000 salary before taxes. I think after taxes, it was about 385 bucks. And, and, uh, and my wife's in college and we're married, so I got to pay for her college out of all that too. Oh, so we, wow. with a lot of dumb financial ideas here <laughs> at the time, and uh, so we did. We put a schedule together in '05. I can remember listening to Doc Layman's uh, oh yeah internet broadcast that he had that year, and he had Bobby Hartsleaf on the show, and Bobby uh, said that you know we're going to race. We're going to race uh, at Volusia, and we're going to race at East Bay. And the significance of that is that was the day, uh, and I'm listening to this broadcast chuckling inside, because during that broadcast, I had already 
hours before that, secured the deal with East Bay Raceway with Al Barnador that we were going to kick off our season there for the Lucas Oil NARA at that time. Right. And, uh, of course, World of Outlaws never raced at East Bay. And we went a couple weeks later. I got a, a letter from from uh, Harsleaf and Dirt Motorsports saying that I was under a no-compete cause with uh, with them as my time of employment. It's un- sad and unfortunate to hear that I, I was planning to go elsewhere and they needed all their camera equipment back. And it was all, it was all ridiculous. I, I owned all my own camera equipment. Nobody ever owned any of that. And then um, I was just a 1099, you know, worker at, at, with any time I was with Doug. So uh, I wasn't any under any paperwork of any sort. So yeah, because in essence, you know, they bought the company you worked for, and you know, they, so they they were kind of trying to say again, this is I could spend so much time on this historical stuff. They were trying to say, hey, you got to stick with us, right? But at the time, you didn't right. sort of like how it all went down. That's that went down. That's why you went to Spencer. Spencer had the Lucas Oil sponsorship, and again, Rick, I, yeah. I stand by my original statement. I I think you kind of formed the Lucas Oil series. The more I hear this story, I don't think you get enough credit for it. I mean, without you, this none of this ever happens. Well, and that might be, but yet without some other people, this never happened. Of course, uh, so, of course, but I mean, so without Spencer, it never happened. Without um, the Masters Entertainment Television package, that probably never happens. Without um, Wayne Castleberry selling our sponsorships that first year, it probably doesn't happen. We didn't have very many, but we, he did sell it all. And then on top of it. Uh, probably the most significant player behind the scenes was Earl Pearson. Yeah. He he said, he said, you guys got this, and I want to get involved and help. And he went to Forrest and com- convinced Forrest to to get deeper into it and post a bigger press, uh, you know, points fund and post a bigger show up money uh, program, winter circle programs, what we called that. And uh, that's where that transition you're talking about, that April part happened. So, um when we went to Speed Weeks, it was the Lucas Oil NARA. And then after Speed Weeks, we went to Brownstown, and Lucas was involved in it, and very involved in it, and they were getting deeper in it. And then at some point, it had to be a discussion, well, there's got to be some infrastructure to support this. Yeah. Um, and we needed somebody like Lucas to help us with that. So it was in April, uh, first week of April of '05 when – uh, Lucas said, all right, we're going to take this on. We're going to own it. We're spending enough money. We're paying for all the points fund, all the show up money. Um, you guys, you got jobs with us, and which was better for us. And, and we had some security with health insurance and things of that sort. Then. And uh, that's where all that got started. So it wasn't the Colossal 100 the first year. I think the Colossal's first year was 2006. Yeah, ja- and Jackie won that year. April race, I remember. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. Jackie Boggs won the race, and I believe it just paid 10000 but yeah, that was that was the first race ran as the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series was in April of '05 at did, at Charlotte. Did you did you think Rick? Because really, in essence, and and I, I've already I knew this was going to happen. I go, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole with Rick, so I <laughs> I got to get back on track a little bit. Did you you know in '05 is really kind of when the competition with the Outlaws started. You know, relatively quickly here, was that the goal? Hey, we're going to compete with them, or you just were kind of looking for an alternative that first year, really, right? Well, yes and no. I, we were looking for an alternative, and we felt like we could compete with them. Uh, I mean, we just didn't like how it was handled. So 
that was why it was so easy to have an alternative is because nobody really cared for how it was handled. So uh, from that, the alternative happened. And, and you know, I, I feel like it got put together really fast, really quickly. We had a full schedule. We raced, I don't know, 30 times or so that first year in 05. And some of those racetracks are still on our schedule today. We're still racing at Brownstown. We're still racing at Florence Speedway. We're still racing at um, Tri-City. Yeah, uh, you know, Tri-City uh, at, at East Bay. I mean, uh, there's, I think there's six Dixie. I think there's six uh, tracks on our schedule that's still been with us since we started in 05. When did you know you had something, so to speak, with the series? When did you kind of know, okay, we're, we have something here? I don't really know because I really kind of feel like that it's been a slow progression at all times. I'm a competitive person. I don't like to, I don't like to lose at all, <laughs> but yet I feel like that. And so therefore I don't like to take steps backwards. So we progressively increased our purses. We progressively increased the amount of teams that are on our roster. We've progressively had more sponsorship with more TV, all these things that just, it's been a slow ramp up, but it's, it's always stayed in a, a steady uphill trajectory. So, um, I'm, I'm just as proud of the O five roster as I am today of today's roster. I feel like today's roster is as start as stout as our sports ever seen and any product anybody's ever put out there. But that O five roster, even though some regard wouldn't, wouldn't be as strong as maybe today, we, we may, we may race and stars out those guys and, and those were our guys. And, and, and uh, those are the guys that committed to us. So they're just as important to us in our history as, as anybody currently. So your job in 05, was your title series photographer? Because I know you were doing a thousand more things. How many years were you officially the series photographer? Because you were doing eight million other things than just the series photographer. Help me understand that a little bit. Yeah, my 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 first title was event coordinator. And event coordinator... Uh, and then I think it changed to project manager and then before it went to series director, but I think I even had assistant series director along the way. <laughs> I remember there, that. But, yeah. But either way it was, what it was, was I'd done in 05, I did all, even starting that first year, I did two thirds at least of all the scheduling. I did all the, uh, uh, posters, advertising, flyers, when, and that sounds generic, but we send posters to every racetrack, which is a practice that we still do today. Yeah. We still send posters to every event. Um, they're custom. They're not generic. Uh, they have their important information on it. And then we do flyers. Those are typically black and white that we put out in the mail. I did all the mailings, all the mailers. Back then, I didn't have any idea what kind of equipment you really needed for that. So we were Ashley and I were folding all those by hand and stuffing them in envelopes. And so it sounds to me like, Rick, like all that photography was your side job. <laughs> I knew you was, was the ultimately the side job. That right. was the thing I was noted for. But yeah, that yeah. was just mainly my role when I got to the racetrack. And and if we had a night where we didn't have enough staff, I worked the night as an official. I didn't work as a photographer. The photography was. If everything was going to plan, I was able to do that. So, um, no, it, it, all along those years, um, the photography thing was all, it, it never was like my main focus. It was always the secondary thing. Take me into the transition, Rick, from 
photographer slash jack of all trades to the series director position that you've so successfully taken the mantle of now. How and when did that begin? Obviously, I know Richie Lewis, you know, acclaimed Lucas Oil employee for so long was there, and I know he was kind of grooming you for that position. And how did that sort of transition begin, Rick? And where did you go? You know what? Shit, I could run this series, right? I could do this one day. When I was a lot younger, I thought I had it then that I could yeah. do that job. <laughs> and and once I finally transitioned into that, I thought, oh my gosh, I was never near ready for it. So <laughs> it, uh, I guess that's just how that goes. But we we ended up um, in the beginning. I was doing so many other projects with the series. And then as it got later, you know, I don't know, we, we got more people first and foremost. I, we start to transition and the, the, the whole program grew. So in the beginning, it was just Spencer and I. And then in 07, they let Lucas let Spencer go. And there's a whole other mess of stuff that was happening there. And we had Mike Swims as a consultant to the series. And, and Mike was the one that made the recommendation to hire Richie. And Richie came on board in 07 and which was fun times and Richie instantly made us better and we went from uh there we went to Wheatland and from from the moment Richie started with us the first race he was there Spencer was still there was uh Hagerstown in the 07 next week we went to Kentucky Lake to Calvert City to a uh did a two-day show there and that was all Richie Spencer wasn't there any longer and then we left there went to an NHRA race in St. Louis seeing Morgan Lucas and the drag team for the first time and we went on out to Wheatland and rode with Forrest with four-wheelers on the ranch for two days and uh and that was in 07 and and Richie at that point was hired my wife Ashley had came out to help us just as she was still working in the bank um, had just finished college and uh she was while we we're at the ranch with Forrest we went back to his house sitting in his dining room and they drilled us about all these questions that they that they had that they drilled my wife and I about did you know this did you know that that I, uh, supposedly Spencer was doing and I didn't really know I had my suspicions that something was going on but you, you don't claim you don't you don't you know just don't claim that unless you know for sure, sure. and and uh, I guess at the end of the day, we were lucky to maintain our jobs. And, and from that conversation at the dining room table, they offered Ashley a job to work for us full time and to handle the accounting side of everything with us. And uh, she quit the bank. We did the, that would have been the Diamond National the first year in, 0- in 07. It would have been the second time we raced there, but it would have been the first Diamond National, I believe, in 06, or 07. Yeah. 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 We left that one and we went to uh, Iowa the next weekend, and that's when that was Ashley's first race weekend with us full time in 07. Cole came to us later at the end of the year, I think in 07, and uh, and then we've we've hired more people along the way since then. But uh, as we got more people, the roles and the responsibilities changed, and the amount of stuff we took on changed along the way. I. I call them 5% things, you know, every year your job gets 5% harder with this or 5% job to take, you know, you get harder with that or it's something, something else we got to do, a new responsibility. Well, it doesn't take long before, you know, 25% is, is 100% harder. So uh, it's just our nature of how we work and, and um, 
So altogether, it, it took a while. It took a long time um, to get to the point where we were a bigger staff. We're still not that big. Uh, we have a fantastic staff that's a, a full-time staff. i got a Hall of Famer, that guy, Steve Francis. Um, I feel like the greatest photographer is, is Heath Lawson, and, and he's our photographer. Uh, Jeremy Shields is an all-star guy that, that worked for us. He left us and came back and couldn't be more grateful to have him. And then we still have, uh, we still have Ashley. We still have Cole working for us. So we, we have a really good cast. And as, as all that, you know, many, many years goes down the road here, you, you just, you just transition into different roles and different things. And we're still transitioning. And even though I'm series director, I, I'm, we're transitioning to cross-train people currently in different roles to where, you know, there may, not all of us could be at every race for some reason. You, you have, you have, funerals you have high school events you i have a 10 year old daughter you know we, we have things that um that happen that you have to you you can't be there for you know, it could be sick you could it could be anything so we got to be prepared for those things so um we just continually try to uh, reinvest into all of those people's careers and then lean on them more and more every day to be able to be prepared for those type of things so i kind of got way sidetracked but yet that's that's kind of how it's always been. It's just always I never really cared about a title, and that that didn't ever matter to me. I I'm I'm a truck driver for our truck. I drive one of the two semi trucks that we have. Uh, I handle a lot of big projects we've had along the way. Um, I'm a pretty mechanical inclined guy. I, I do much of the maintenance of all the vehicles and the stuff we have. I rather be out getting my hands dirty doing that kind of stuff than I would be sitting at my desk. So it's, but I got that to do too. And I have a cell phone part of it to do too. So it's, it's, uh, the title part never been anything I really concerned myself with. It's, you, it's you mentioned, uh, Jeremy, taking care of the business. you mentioned Jeremy Shields, obviously Ben Shelton, a good mutual friend of ours. You, you and Ben have kind of traded Jeremy back and forth the last couple of years. Ben joked when you hired him last time that he's going to try to hire Ashley Schwally, your wife away from the series. <laughs> I said, she might take the job, Ben. So unless you're ready to hire her, be careful because she actually might take that position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It could happen, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned the cell phone thing. It's my next question. What is the biggest pain in the ass about being a series director for a national tour? My guess is that you're on the phone 24 hours a day. Maybe that's not the answer. Is that it? That's probably the biggest nuisance. I wouldn't call that the biggest pain. To me, the the hardest parts of the job is you can't take nothing personal, and everybody's got their opinions, and most times a lot of people hide behind their opinions, but um, the hardest part is you, we get ourselves into jams that you can't do. No matter what you do, you can't get yourself out of them. You're, you just end up being the bad guy. And, and you get into these jams, whatever it be, um, and most of the time it would be have to do with preparedness in my mind because if you're prepared for it and you know it coming, then you shouldn't get yourself into them. So I, I feel like we're much better at that than we used to be. But... Um, you just don't let yourself get into them. Uh, you just can't let ever let your guard down, and 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 that's kind of a pain. But that's that's really how it is. And, and when we have other uh, other pains, I guess, are, are just uh, loyalty to me is an issue. I'm a very loyal person. I've worked for Lucas Oil for 16 years. You've heard me say already in my history 
whatever team I'm on, I'm on that team. I, I don't stray from that. And, and these are the people I I play with and work for. I, I use a lot of fit, football metaphors in, in our staff meetings and stuff. I don't mind to be the head coach, but I've got, I got a really good offensive coordinator in, in Jeremy Shields. i got a really good defensive coordinator, you know, defined in our rule book with Steve Francis. And we got really good coaches. we got a, an all-star cast. And, and, and um, that that's – I'm just a loyal person, and I don't feel like there's a lot of loyalty in racing whatsoever. Amen. I, I feel like – Amen to that. <laughs> you know, I, and that's, that's really difficult. I, I really feel like, you know, for – if you give a racer what they want, it's never enough. Yeah. Not every racer is this way, but the stereotype of it is that's what it's like. It's never enough. It's never what you've done for me. It's what will you do for me tomorrow. And and yet once you do provide what they want, they still go elsewhere and race. It's, it's the hardest thing for me to understand. Like, just, I, I don't know. It's, it's just a, it's a difficult part. You hear other people touch on the same subject because I know every, we all experience it. Anybody that's involved in motorsports experiences it and, it's just not enough loyalty in it. And uh, we deal with other hard parts, weather, being one, track conditions, um, just getting, making sure all of our staff is, is tugging in the same direction. We, we, have, we have men, we have women that work for us at the racetrack. They're of different ages. They're of uh, different uh, skill sets. Um, we, we have people that are very computer-oriented. We have people that are mechanically-oriented. And in a lot of ways, those people don't, always get along because they don't come from the same same methods and they feel like one job's more important than the other well they're all equally important so the the that stuff can be challenging as well and the most challenging thing would probably be just blind sides we get hit by blind sides all the time and you just can't prepare for them so that's what i'm saying you can't ever let your let your guard down and it's it kind of galvanizes you a little bit that I'm not I'm, I'm not the guy I used to be. I used to be a jokester, a prankster, and, and I always look like I'm pissed off, and that's not really the case. <laughs> I just got my head focused on that because I just never let my guard down. Yeah, I mentioned the World of Outlaws earlier. We talked about them a little bit back in the day. I want to talk about them now currently. Uh, without question, unlike sprint car racing, there are two national tours in our sport, Lucas Oil and the World of Outlaws. I know the relationship over the years has ebbed and flowed, uh, between you guys, it's been up, it's been down, it's been fine, it's been contentious. I want an honest answer from you. As we sit here in mid-May, late May 2021, what is the Lucas Oil relationship with the World of Outlaws? Sure. Yeah, and and you're right. It's It's been up and down at times, uh, and different people involved. And uh, really, the breakdown always involves whether or not we say we're going to, or do what we're going to say. And I feel like we've held our end of the bargain on that several times that we leave a meeting, we're going to do what we said we're going to do, or we at least communicate what it is what we're going to do. And uh, currently, uh, Casey Schumann is involved with the Outlaws, and and uh, we we t- we do talk quite a bit more. And, and I would say the first year that Casey worked for the Outlaws, I never spoke to him until he came to Knoxville that year. So he, he got all the way nine months into his season before we ever spoke. Um, but we are talking now at times, I wouldn't say a tremendous amount. I don't want to paint a picture the wrong way, but, uh, I feel like it is important most of all right now that there is one rule book and that you race a car that races with us and you race a car that races with the world of outlaws, or you take it to any of the regional series and it's the same car. 
And as much as that looks like that's the way it is on the surface, it really, it really is not. And, and there's a lot of little subtle rule changes that are different. Their weight rule's a little different than ours. Uh, the droop rule's very different than ours. But um, they're just, we went through our rule book recently and outlined those differences. And we've started to bridge that gap. Uh, Kenny Kennedy, their series technical director, and our series technical director, Steve Francis. Uh, Kenny's from Batavia. He's a former employee of ours. And uh, Steve was at our shop in Batavia where I'm at. And, and I was like, man, you're here. Have that guy over. Talk to him. Let's, let's, let's fix this stuff to where we're all on the same page. Steve worked uh, Richmond, Kentucky with the Outlaws. Uh, uh, Kenny and, and Casey are coming to the Show Me 100 to be a part of our events. Uh, mainly to where we're teching the same way. I and mean, our sub practice, even if our print reads the same way in the rule book, practice in the field's got to be the same as well. And so they're coming to our events. We recently met uh, this week at Masters Built Race Cars of all places. It gives us, it gave us a car this week to, to measure stuff off of. And uh, Dan Robinson was part of that. Uh, Steve, Kenny, and Casey, and myself, and and Ultimately, the, you know, it's easy to paranoid the pit area and think that there's big changes coming or the, the world is just turned upside down but, or we got some car tomorrow coming or anything like that. That isn't ultimately at all what we're working on. We're just, we need to collaborate to where we owe it to the racers to have one standardized rules to where you know what you get when you get there, either place you're racing. And I'm a big proponent for that. It's the way it's got to be. Um, Casey's brought up the subject of, of one common tie rule, um, whether it's LM 20, 30, 40, or, or whatever it be, it could be, I don't know, we call it a Hoosier one, two, three for all we care, but this, uh, sprint car racing is much simpler with tire compounds. We challenged, we talked to Shannon Rush about it this week. We challenged him on it. Um, that too, will have plenty of challenges. Um, but it's, it's, it's refreshing to work with them. Um, as long as we can make something happen, we want to move the needle here, and, and we want to f- just make this right. Well, and I've met, you know I've made no bones about it in the past. I think it sounds like the communication is there now. You're getting along. I, I personally think Casey's a really good guy. I get along with him well. I've told you that before, as I do you and I've been friends for a long time. I've always said I think we need two national tours. Do you agree with me, Rick? I know you're getting along with him now, but do you believe that it is in the sport's best interest, as I do, to have two national tours? No, I don't agree at all. <laughs> okay, then. Uh, let's get into it. Yeah, in, in my opinion, and this may not be a favorable opinion of a lot of people, um, and first and foremost, the way it is set up right now, the dynamic of two tours, there, there's a lot of teams fed, fed from that. And, and that, that I have no qualms about that. that. That's perfect. But what I mean that I want to see one is I feel like we limit our potential when you ask yourself how many fans are in the stands, and most races have three to 5,000 people in the stands, why is that not 10? Why, why is it three to five? We, is there any scientific way of measuring that or knowing that? I feel like, in my opinion, that if we had one tour and if it was big enough with enough fan support that you could have 20 teams on that tour full-time, and we're feeding just as many as, as currently having two team, uh, two tours. Uh, a lot of people are going to feel like that they want to win. Like, like is it, do you want to be a bigger? 
you want to be a big fish in a small pond or you want to be the big fish in a big pond? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, in my opinion, may differ from a lot of opinion, a lot of people's opinions here, but I work for Lucas Oil. I'm part of this team, and, and this team, we go, out, we get up every morning, and we work very hard to make this one the best damn series we can, and and have the most money that's supporting the teams, the the, the most amount of sponsorships we can, the most uh, uh, the best racing we can provide, the the biggest crowds we can provide. We work hard on this one. I am overall concerned about the sport and keep my pulse on it, but yet I'm responsible for this one, and I'm on this team for this one. So it would be really hard for me to say that there needs to be two. I, I feel like if I'm doing my job right for all these people that I'm representing, then I should only feel it. I should be really concerned with this one, right? And I don't disagree with that. I do believe, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, pie in the sky is not, please don't take that insulting, but as you said, all of the challenges that are presented in racing, if you have 20 of the best guys in one country on the tour, the tow money that would come along with that, the half the field would never win a race, the anger that would go into that. I guess I'm skipping those five steps and saying, yeah, I know racing well enough to know that'll never fly. Maybe you're right. Maybe one day there could be 20, but but what about those challenges, Rick? The enormous amount of tow money, you'd need more sponsorship. The fact that half the guys are going to get pissed off that they're not going to win. How do you, have you rectified those challenges in your head? No, of course not. We haven't had any of it to worry about. (laughs) Or you'd have done it, right? uh, We'd have done it already. (laughs) Yeah, it's just my opinion at the end of the day. But I I do agree that if we were supporting 20, say just say you had 24 teams on the the tour, then anybody that came and raced with you would think, well, how the heck are we supposed to make the race? Right, right. So I get that. I understand all that. And and really, nobody wants to be the, the dead last guy on, on a tour or, or even at the back of the field. That Their season didn't go to plan. Any, anybody that plans to do this whole thing every year, they don't expect to be at the end. And there, there's it happens, and it happens to those guys. And, and the only thing you do is take your hits, and, and hopefully our program's set up to where it supports them enough that they can still survive when they've had that bad year and they can come back and fight for another one. Staying on the topic of tours, we at flow racing launched our flow racing night in America mini series this year, just 10 races. And again, this is a place of truth. Um, so I want us to be honest with each other. I knew you were not happy about it when we launched it. I have since talked to you more and I, we're in a good place now, I think. And you may still not love it. We haven't flushed that out all the way, but you know, I guess we're we're sort of having an airing of the grievances on the air here. Why didn't you like it? What what about it rubbed you the wrong way? This ten race miniseries, just like you said, you were honest. In my mind, I felt like it could actually enhance some of your stuff. But what was it about it, Rick? You didn't like, or maybe still don't like? Sure, I and and I don't say these things to rub anybody the wrong way. You got a great crew too, and and, and you're and you're Ben does a great job, and Dustin does a great job. Uh, everybody's doing, uh, you got a good cast and I'm not upset with that. I'm not jealous of that. I, you guys have done a great job. I, my part my view of it is for what we worked hard to build. And in my eyes, uh, I called it, I called it a piggyback. You didn't like the vocabulary of a <laughs> piggyback, but when, in my eyes, when we have a race and whether or not that we're going to get our race in, suggest whether or not you want to do your race on the leading side of that suggests to me that it's a piggyback off of our event. It costs a lot of money to get our tour here. So to, to do a race 
we're paying the top 12 to show up and we collect a sanction fee and we collect injury fees. But at the end of the day, Lucas Oil pays that show up money to that top 12. And it's significant. It's $1,000 to the to the reigning champ, $800 to any previous champ, 700 for the rest of the top 12 that's never won a championship. And that's expensive. And our purses are high. Our purses, we worked and worked and worked to always make them better. And to me, if we were going to do a Tuesday night, say, in Iowa, then my price tag for that's $52,000. Well, it's easy for it's easier if I was to undercut that and race for thirty nine thousand dollars, even though they would call them both ten thousand to win. They're not the same. And on top of that fifty two thousand price, I've got also another ten grand in show up money that we got to pay the the team. So the teams are supported better with us, and they they get their their perks of their show up money. Each team in the top 12, they've earned this. They they get two armbands, two pit passes for free. They do pay their entry fee. We don't give anybody a free entry, and they are uh, they're they're assured their guarantees. We're guaranteeing the purse. All these things that we we have in place. And I'm not a fan of anybody coming in and and yet have our roster support something like that that's in close proximity to our events. And we're paying the we're paying the road. We're the ones that's financially getting them there, for the most part. And the races are in close proximity, and it makes financial sense for them to run. I get it because it's in close proximity. They're already coming to our races. Take our races away, it doesn't make any sense for them. And it's that's what I have a problem with it. And, and, and in all reality, right now we have 14 cars on our tour, and I, and probably about half of them. Seven of them are doing them, and seven of them are not. So it's a judgment call is, is what we're racing. Right now we're racing 60 times a year. Do It, it suggests to me, and half, half that discussion is, is that, well, maybe we need to be racing 70 times a year. We can book them right now. But there's also another half of our roster that's not racing that because we're racing enough for what they want to race. So it's it's kind of a, it's a double-edged sword. It's hard to hard to know where we need to be and line up with that but yet i feel like we hold our we hold our promoters to a standard and i don't like another sanctioning come in close to us and feed off of our standard and and reduce the cost in order for the guys and that's what goes back to the loyalty thing to go back to the race teams that i'm asking those teams if you band together We'll sell enough tickets that the promoter has no problem. That's how it works. And I just don't want to dilute our product is all. You mentioned the number of races you've got. You and I have talked about this before. You've sort of like threatened to lo- – I use the term threatened um, as your intention, not as a negative connotation. You've threatened to say, hey, we had 65. I'd rather have this thing be 48. And now you just talked about what what is the sweet spot, Rick? Because I know at one point you were like, you know what? We need less races. Now you're like, eh, maybe we could race more. What What is the sweet spot for a national tour these days, you think? Yeah, I think the sweet spot – for us would be 55 that's quite a bit it's still doing quite a bit and that's more than what we used to be so, so 10 years ago we would have done 40 but those 40 was say a, a topless 100 that had a practice night a race night right or a prelim night and then, and then a feature night well now that's three feature nights so really it's not any more of a commitment weekend wise and it's always been it's just that it, the, the feature count is much higher now but the to me, we've we've been as high as 65, and and 
we about killed ourselves. So that was the, as far as the staff goes, and my experience with, you know, those working for us and the amount of effort and work we put into every event, um, from banner signage to the promoting side of it, to prepping for our sponsors that we're representing. And then, you know, a company like super clean is a sponsor of ours. We, we haul their product that they're distributing and, and taking to the races in our truck. So it, it's a matter of all these things that we have to do to support an event. It's it just, I think 55 is our magic number. However, so how do you get back? Right? You're at 65. Right? <laughs> how do you, how do you go backwards yeah. though? That's almost impossible, right? Well, I've always told our staff that we will always, in my opinion, even if it's not best for Rick, not best for Ashley or Cole or, or any of our staff, Jeremy, Heath, it may not best may may not be best for the characters, but we'll always do what's best for the series. So that means we got to race more. Well, that means we're going to race more, and we're going to get out there and we're going to go do it. But it's 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 also you know if we if we say we race ten more times, if we find that we're losing teams because they're not able to survive or keep up with the pace, then then that's suggesting you back off. But yet current the current model looks like that. Maybe we're not racing enough the way they're they're racing elsewhere so much. Or if we have any rain out, there's there's some teams that take them off, but yet there's teams that go race elsewhere. And is it better for them to go get racing elsewhere to go getting racing elsewhere? Uh, my point is, where if they race with us, then they get their program, they get they get their show up money, they get the they get their pit passes, they get the, the parts that are inclusive into the program. So. It's uh, it's it's kind of a science, and I don't know that we have the magical answer to that. I I, I feel like if we wanted to race 70 times, we certainly could do it right now. There, there's enough racetracks and high enough demand that once on our schedule, we wouldn't have any problem booking them. And um, but yet the infrastructure has to go with it, and I don't know that we have enough staffing to pull that off. Uh, all of our races are streamed this year, so it's it's not just our entity. We have to also concern ourselves is the is is the Lucas Oil Studios equipped to do that, and 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 every event doesn't make any money. Like like at the end of the day, well, our only revenue is off of a sanction fee and entry fees, and then what you pay out and show up money offsets more than that. So every race loses money. So. How many more races do we want to race and just take on more more debt to do it too? So it's 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 just a hard business. It's just what what it truly is on the behind the side uh, behind the scenes side of it. I've talked about this on the show a few times, pivoting away from that stuff. The idea that Jonathan Davenport could actually rally and win the Lucas Oil Championship this year, in essence, after skipping a race earlier this year to run that Bristol race in March. Now we all know that race at Brownstown did not get completed. JD is back in the points hunt. He's in the top three or four. And there's a bit of a debate about what's going to happen next. Rick, I'll let you maybe break the news right here. What What is going to happen next? When JD goes back to Brownstown in September, can he run that race? Do we know yet? Is he, I mean, I think he's still a series regular by, by all accounts, but what happens when he goes back to Brownstown? Sure. Uh, to give you the answer to that, first, our attendance is based on a lot of things are based on attendance, but we have a term that we use uh, that's called good standing attendance. So if you miss a race, then you have to make a race up to us before you're back in good standing. And that's for eligibility for provisionals, show up money, 
any of that sort. Um, the collect points fund check, you have to have 80% uh, attendance. So even if he just misses one weekend, he's um, clips that where we're going to have more than 80%. So my point is, is so he missed Brownstown, even though we rained out, um, we pay the top 12 in, in our points show up money. If I shouldn't say we rained out, we had a terrible night and the track was rough and we canceled the event, uh, postponed the event till later. And, um, when we do that, anytime that we start selling armbands at the pig gate, and we don't finish the event, we still end up paying them their half their show of money for the top 12 to be there. And because of that, um, 50 points is rewarded from pill draw. So 50 points has already been put in the points tally for that night at Brownstown's for pill draw because we did do that. And uh, so the next night when we went to Atomic, JD's in attendance. And that night at Atomic, JD was not provisional eligible because he owed us a night. He's also not Winter Circle, our show up check. There's Winter Circle's of vocabulary we use for that. He wasn't eligible for that either. Um, we pay the top 12 highest guys there that are as eligible. So I forget who the 13th guy was, but that's who was paid and at Atomic. And then once he makes that up, the next race going forward, if he's still in the top 12, then he gets paid as the inside the top 12. That's just that's just how it works with the attendance side of it. So, uh, and and, I, and even that night at Atomic, Brad McCown, the promoter, says, "I just want to start everybody." And I, and I quizzed Brad. I says, "Well, don't get me in a jam." This is back to one of those points where I said, "We get ourselves in a jam. We can't right. get out of this. Is the hard part. Don't get me in a jam." Let, let's not announce that through until these heat races were done because I didn't, I don't do this out of spite. I just do it out of being right from wrong because if he wasn't provisional eligible, then I can't necessarily say that we're just going to start everybody. So we waited till the heats were complete. Jonathan won the first heat. He was in the show. It didn't do any harm to nobody else. If anything, uh, this is also part of my task is to try to, to get all I can get for our racers. And even those that are not full time on the tour, Let's start them all if Brad's willing to do that. So that's a that's a good thing. So we ended up starting them all, but we waited to announce that until after after uh, JD and and the rest of the heats were completed. So um, and that was that's not a stab at them. It's just right from wrong. So uh, the next side of all that is so he's in good standing attendance. That's the only race he's missed. From what I understand, they plan to do the rest of the year. Um, he can go on to win the championship and he can, when we do go back to Brownstown, uh, there was a couple things there. So first and foremost, in the letter of the rule book, it says that, that provisionals to be eligible for a provisional, if that's what it came to, he has to make an attempt in time trials, heat race or B main. He's missed time trials and B and heat race. So if he was allowed to tag the tail to B main, then he would be provisional eligible. And it even says in there that provisionals for postponed events is based on the current points of the postponed day of race. So when we go back, the provisional lineup will be from the September lineup of the what it is after Knoxville, the point standings. Um, that's defined right in the rule book. Okay. So what what I didn't realize, and I thought we were going to have to make a judgment call on, because that's a lot. A lot of times, that's what a rule book is made up of, and that's how ours, I guess, has gotten so thick. Is it's made up of, from experiences where you've had 
good day or is made up of experiences of stuff that was not defined in the rule book that you had to further define. So I went to define this because I didn't think this was in the rule book. I, in fact, I called JD and told him, well, we're going to set a precedence here. We're not going to let anybody tag the tail of the B main at Brownstown. In my opinion, I felt like that those cars that were on site that supported us that day, um, whether they're in the show or not, just take, for instance, the guys that are in that B main, they were there originally and they're, they had to come back in order to participate in, in that B main. I don't feel as it's right that anybody else can come in and potentially take a spot away from them. And I said, we're not going to let any cars tag the tail to be main. So with that said, he wouldn't be provisional eligible. I went through over the process of calling half our roster and telling them this is my stance. This is the precedence we're going to set. And in that process, we are, uh, um, JD sends me a, a text with a screenshot in the rule book and then calls me, says, you're not going to go by your rule book. And in the rule book, and this is embarrassing because I felt like I should have known this. It says in there that, um, that we, we need to, or it says it right in the rule book that if somebody wants to participate in a postponed event, they're allowed to do so in the, in the event, if they pay an entry fee and if, and it even says that they are lined up by in, in the order of which they pay the entry fee. So um, at the end of the day, I feel like the rule book should always set you free. Yeah. That's that's what you if if your rule book is as clean as it can be, it sets you free from these these type of things. And in this case, it does. I don't know that I necessarily agree with it. And uh, but but they are but ultimately. That's that's that's. I mean, it's in the rule book. It's in black and white. So, long story short, he's coming to Brownstown. He's in good standing, and the way you see it, or the way it's been explained to you, he's going to. He's not going to Texas in September. He's coming to Knoxville, basically. As we sit here in late May, that's kind of the plan. What you're hearing. I'm sorry. Say that again. So I was going to say, so as you said, as we sit here today, he's in good standing. He's going to Brownstown. He's provisional eligible, and he's going to Knoxville in September. Is what they've conveyed to you. He's not going to Texas, basically, is what you're hearing. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that that was an excellent explanation, and it it summed it up. And I, you know, from I think he's got every Lucas race on the schedule the rest of the year. So that's uh, I think that clears that up. I want to pivot again, Rick. Um, biggest threat to dirt late model racing, and I know you could go on for an hour about this. So so try to keep it somewhat compact because there's maybe more than one. What is the biggest threat to dirt late model racing right now? I think there's a short term answer to that and a long term. The short-term answer to that right now, uh, as we sit today, is part shortages. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lot of part shortages for anything you try to order right now. Uh, engine builders are getting behind on on building engines because of part shortages. I think I think it's an important thing that race teams need to take into account. Is what if we get into the middle dog days of summer where all the money's at, and our lap our motors are lapped out, and we can't get new motors yeah. like. Uh, it, it's just, it's an issue we, we're going to have short term here. Sheet metal shortages right now. Who's your tires against the press? Uh, events that are being ran are, uh, you know, I think the show me tires are, are, are being made and, and sent directly from Hoosier out there. Like, like it's just, it's just, we're not in a shortage with tires, but we are, we are against the press. Um, so long term issues, in my opinion, these may be a little far out there, but, in my opinion, the crew help, 
um, involving younger people in the sport. Yeah. And, and, and really we're going to have to do this in the next five to 10 years is there's going to have to be a change of generation in the majority of our racetracks in the promoting team. Um, we don't have a lot of young promoters out there and, and a lot of the promoters have been there for a long time and, and they've been great for our sport, but yet there's going to have to be a next man up. And I don't know exactly who those people are yet. And, and I think those are going to be challenges here as we move forward. As we kind of round towards the end of the interview, Rick, I know two huge things for you are safety and tech, just safety and tech, safety of the drivers and teching cars. You mentioned it, you know, working with the World of Outlaws, one set of rule book. Where, did that come from somewhere from you? Other than, of course, the obvious that it's best for the sport as a whole. Did you have an experience that shaped you on safety and tech that kind of has led to this? I know it is a passion of yours. It is. It's a big passion of mine, and mainly because I've been on the scene of a couple of those crash sites that until you've experienced that, until you sleep on that, until you can't sleep on that, you don't have any idea what that's like. And ultimately, I, I remember the one really fondly of John Flanner's wreck at Pittsburgh. Yeah. And let me just explain this. So this guy had a bad wreck. We're on top of the car. I'm on the deck of the car. It's all blown out above the fuel cell. Um, they're holding his head steady, and we're taking the roof off the car. We didn't have a Sawzall. We borrowed a Sawzall from somebody in the pits. The battery dies. They're running back to get another battery. His brother's on the racetrack saying, get him out of the damn car. And his family's on the racetrack crying. Until you're part of a scene like that, you really have no idea what that's like. Yeah. And, and really, it's hard to – and, and then when you sleep on these things, uh, we had – I had another I, – I, we encouraged our whole staff to go through CPR training and first aid and AD. We have three ADs on our trucks. We have one in each trailer in our rescue truck. And that was in uh, – What is an AD for those, at home, for those at home that don't know an AD? Yeah, it's an automatic defibrillator right. for, for, like, the paddles you would put on their chest and, and – and uh, so we have that defibrillator in our truck, and we did this training in January. And one month later, we're at East Bay and get a call. I think it was Kevin Rumley called me and said, hey, we need the ambulance back here right away. There's a guy down. Well, the ambulance had already left. It was after the race. So then when I go back there, um, he wasn't down because of heat exhaustion or anything. He was having a heart attack. So we, and, and they, and people on site were saying, I think he's got a pulse. I think he's okay. And, and we immediately put the AED on him because the AED looks for a pulse and says no pulse detected, shock advised. And we ended up, I was there, uh, Cole, Cole Lewis and myself performed CPR on that gentleman for seven minutes. Amanda was standing over our shoulder saying, um, you know, coaching us because we'd all been through the class <laughs> and said, you know, we, we, when the ambulance got there, he had a pulse, they put him in the ambulance and we ended up, uh, um, they lost him once they got to the hospital and, and that's a hard, hard thing to swallow. But yet at the same time, we as a staff was prepared and we give them a fighting chance and, uh, so that's the that's you experiencing it. That's what shaped you. <laughs> you you experience these things. Yeah. So once you go through that, it's like an AED is expensive. They're like fifteen hundred dollars, yeah. and, and we got three of them. Do we really need to spend forty five hundred dollars on these things? Like 
but yet once you have them, that, uh, that's that's out of the equation. You it's, don't once you've used one once, you're it, like. And okay. tech is kind of part of that too, right, Rick? I mean, the tech is part of the safety aspect. They kind of go hand in hand. Yes, you're teching for other things, but those are those are similar things in a way. They're they're very similar things. So the car safety tech of it too, when when you're going through and. So we made mandated we mandated rated seats and and ultimately the goal there was to get people to buy a rated seat the next time they buy a seat we heard all these things and we'll fit in our car they're too heavy uh, we we can't get out and out of them blah 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 it ends up everybody's got a man now so uh, at, at every event we go to eighty percent plus has got a rated seat in so that's not a big deal it's not of any significance the problem is is that it, that is the right thing we had sixteen concussions in two thousand sixteen. How I can remember it, and then since rated seats, we've had two concussions, wow. and those concussions, um, one of them was R.J. Conley at Portsmouth, and Freddie Carpenter had one this year at East Bay, and both of them were in an unrated seat. So the data doesn't lie; uh, it says that we did the right things there. Um, but you just find the next weakest point. The next weakest point in what we're doing here is is the uh, is to see mounting, for instance. Um, Frankie Heckenes was driving at Portsmouth, and he had a 1 o'clock hit uh, into the wall at Portsmouth. And when he did, uh, his seat mounts had slotted holes for easier mounting into the frame, and the slotted holes pulled out, and the seat came loose. Um, we find in a hard enough wreck if they have a lot of guys, and it's amazing how many guys feel like that aluminum spacers can be milled out and put in between the bracket and the back of the seat and in a hard enough hit it one one gets pulled through the seat and the other one gets punched through the back of the seat like as a twist so even though we got all the right things you still in the field have got to look and you got to help educate and and you don't want to say this in a derogatory manner because these people have done the right in most cases most of these guys have bought the right thing they got the rated seat you asked them to get (laughs) but they still need to be coached through the process to make sure you're just trying to make sure they go home to their family and their loved ones that night that's every night all right, series of quick hitters here, all right? I want these these to be relatively quick-hitting questions. I'm going to hit you with a series of top fives, and then we're going to get to true or false. So here we go. Five tracks okay. that you wish Lucas Oil was racing at that you're not. Give me your five. <laughs> okay. And I, and I put effort into all these, most of these, I should say. <laughs> okay. Um, I like I really like Husets. I've been watching Husets for a year now, and they had their first all-star race last year when they opened back up. I, I, it might be a little small for late-mall racing, but I, I, I just like the looks of it. I think it, it's, it looks like it races awesome. I've, I've watched – they've had a couple of weekly shows already this year. I've watched those as they were streamed, and I like Husets. Uh, I like Hopstot, Indiana. Uh, of course. Um, Hopstot's a – a great, fantastic racetrack. Wouldn't draw great for car count, but it's a fantastic racetrack. It's a bucket list. I want to see the series there someday. Okay. Uh, we, I, I was, I don't know. Like I said, put effort into this because I was at, I was at Hopstop probably three, four weeks ago and visited with Tom Helfridge there as he was hanging up billboards and talked about this very thing. So, um, I would like to see this series go to Fairbury at some point. I was there last week. Um, just taken into place. I haven't been there in like 20 plus years. So I wanted to check it out. Um, I'd like to see the series at Eldora. I, I really feel like it's big picture is that I want to see us continue to evolve and get bigger and better. 
um, why wouldn't you be part of our sport's biggest two events? I, this is how I feel about it. Uh, and the last one, I guess my fifth one wouldn't necessarily be, wouldn't necessarily be a track that we have to go to. I like to develop a West coast swing that we made of a series of three, you know, four or five events that we raced out towards California and back. And, um, we made it an attempt at this at one point and most of the racetracks out there are open wheel racetracks. So it's kind of hard to sell them on our size purses to do a, a late model race when uh, three and five K late model races that they've done out there, uh, have kind of burned them. So it's, it's kind of difficult, but it's still a goal overall. Okay. Let's keep going with the top five, top five. Eh, let's go top five moments in series history. What are your top five moments? Mm, let me think here for a minute here. So I would go with show me 100 that that's a, a generic answer. But what I'm saying there is the show me 100 was never, sanctioned until we did it and we get a lot of um bad flavor from that because it was always a really good paying purse and everything and the, the old gibson the, purse at west plains right yeah, yeah the gibson family cut it that year that we did it but they were cutting it irregardless whether we did it or not um but we were the first sanctioned body to ever sanctioned the race at at uh, the show me 100 at west plains and became really good friends with them um Don Gibson's always set in his ways about his racetrack, and I can remember he didn't have a transponder loop, and we were coming in with this big, bad sanctioned body he was going to help him, and he didn't want to dig up his racetrack. So 8 o'clock one morning, we were there a week ahead of time to help him, and 8 o'clock that morning, we were out there with a bobcat and wore gloves and shovel, putting a transponder loop in. And so we later acquired the Show Me 100 name from them and took it to Wheatland and kept it going. and. and Show Me's turned into even more. You know, we've we've had CBS air it. Uh, it's been a live TV broadcast for a few years now. This is that's that's a big moment in our in our series history. To Show Me. What else? Just um, one. There's got to be more than one. <laughs> I uh, said no, top I, five. Yeah, I can think of more. <laughs> so another one to me would be Florence Tires. So we had. Oh, I was in the infield for that that night. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So so here was the dynamic of that. Um, we pay $416 to have a tire tire tested. And that's just for the lab cost. It costs more than that, of course, by the time you get all of your expenses in it. But we had the thought that instead of testing six tires from the feature that night, why wouldn't we just buy 24 tires and give them to the field and issue them before the race and nobody's had a chance to play with them and race it that way? Well, it seems a little far-fetched, but we did it, and and, and even the, we didn't even charge the racer for the tire. Uh, half of them uh, are actually – I had a, a silent guy that wanted to help us once I explained what I'd like to have accomplished with that, wanted to help us with it, and I don't guess he has to remain silent forever. It was Ed Petroff. He was a really good friend to help us with that and said he he gave us the tire money to, to buy them. So uh, we tried that, and from that, uh, King no cutting and siping for two seasons of our history, and, and I think there's still a place for that, maybe somewhere in the future, especially the way we're marking tires nowadays to limit their amount of use. But it was, uh, I think that's a big moment in our in our series history as well. I think the first annual dirt a uh, dirt million was a big another big one at Mansfield. Um, Cody provided us a big purse, a big big money to race for. We're very proud of that, very thankful for that. 
but we put a lot into that as well. We were there a week ahead of time. We were painting walls. We were <laughs> stocking toilet paper in the bathrooms. We, we, we were there for a majority of everything. We went well above beyond what a racing sanctioned body in most loose terms would say. I was painting the wall with you, so I, I remember that. Yes, <laughs> we, we were both there. Yes, uh, two, two others. Yeah. What do you got for your two others? Yeah, I would go with Fanless Races last year. Um, that was an expensive uh, excursion to go do, uh, to host Fanless Races. Lucas Hole paid for all the purse money. We, we streamed them free on TV or on uh, Facebook. Um, it showed us our potential of what broadcast on Facebook could be and, and how many people we could reach with that. So I, I think that was a big thing um, in our series history. Hopefully we don't have to cross that ever again. And then uh, I guess uh, another generic one would be just ever-increasing purses. Yeah. Since we've started, we have always tried to better ourselves. We had 7,000 win races in the first year, first few years. We did away with those and went to 10s. And then the Saturdays went to 12s. And then uh, Friday, Saturdays went to 12,000 to win. And I think our race fans are willing to pay ticket prices based on what those things pay to win, and I hate that. Yeah. Because ultimately, we're advocates for putting more money in the purse and, and feeding everybody a healthy a healthy dose here. Um, and even today, our, our events, they all pay 1000 to start, but they're, uh, they're 2000 for 10th. And I think that's an important part. We, we had these 15s on Saturday this year, um, and and I think we got to continue to plug away at that. And uh, I, I just I feel like that's an important part of it's not a moment. It's not one moment because it's it's several times along the way that we've continued to elevate our program. But it, it's it's definitely uh, one of those that's very important to our series history. A couple more top fives before I wrap it up with true and false. Um, eh, how about uh, t- oh, how about this? Top five things you'd want to see, like uh, goals, I guess, right, or something. Five things you think the series should be doing, or you want the series to do. Okay. Mm. I don't, I don't know if we'll ever reach these, but yet if we're going to have them, that's the only way you're ever going to reach them is to first make them, right? So to me, the first goal would be I'd like to see our points fund be 100000 to win. It's currently 75000 to win. We have a couple other big significant contingencies uh, like uh, TV challenge points and uh, uh, the Crown Jewel Cup points and all those types of point standings that end up most of the time our, our champion the last – three or four years come away every year with at least a hundred thousand. But I just, I like to see the big hundred K on the check. So uh, that would be one goal for us. Uh, our show up money, I've, I've explained what that is and how much that is. I'd like to see that support 12 teams at a thousand a night. Um, to me, I, I'd like to see us grow a roster from 12 to 15, but that's a double edged sword and you've already touched on it. And, and, right. and you're absolutely right that, if you grow it to 15, then that's less spots that are race that weekly people that participate at a racetrack think they can race for. And so I don't know if that's necessarily an important thing, just to the fan experience and to the fans and our roster overall. I, I'd like to see it grow to 15, but probably not the biggest one. Um, I think I think the next step in person increases or changes would, in my mind, be an increase in the B main money. Um, we pay a thousand to start most of our events and it's $100 for the first non-transfer in a B main. I just don't, I think that's out of line. I think, 
I think that ought to be tiered off, say 800 for first non-transfer, and then uh, whatever it be, 500, 400, 300, and then tiered off to 100. But I, I just think that there ought to be a fall off there um, if we're going to continue to at least support those that are, are supporting our events that, that are not on the tour. I think that's, an, uh, that's probably my highest one on my list other than fan experience. I think that's my number five one would be I'd like to see us have a jumbotron at the races, but more pyro, more <laughs> music. I'd like to see it faded in between, you know, heat races with music and stuff. And I just like the fan experience to be elevated. I, uh, you go to a concert, you go anywhere else, you go do anything else, and and I take away from that. Man, I want this. I want. I want. Heck, I want lasers. I want. I feel like uh, uh, the guy um, oh, with Austin Powers movie. I, what can we do to get some lasers <laughs> up in here? So it's. <laughs> I would, I'd like to have a better fan experience and, and more invested into that. Five worst nights, last top five. Five worst nights of your your Lucas Oil career. I went through all the rosy stuff. Give me the five shittiest nights you've had. Well, we've had some doozies. Uh, I would say first one would have been, number one worst night I've ever had would have been the topless 100. Uh, um, several years ago, not in the last five years, we had, we had one of those nights, we just 10% chance of rain poured on us. We're going out to get out there with four wheelers and, and uh, side by sides to try to run it in. We work on that for three and a half hours. The fans are patient through the process. They think they're going to get to see a race that night. And, and Mooney's hell bent on getting us a race that night. And, and we're just not getting anywhere with the track. And we come to reality that it's not going to happen tonight. And Mooney went upstairs and told them all that, Lucas guys didn't want to race tonight and uh-huh. set my phone until tailspin for the next two weeks. People calling about that. So that was probably one of the worst nights I had at the racetrack. Uh, the, the, the Brownstown race this year at the <laughs> sure. breaker. That's definitely right there with it. It, uh, to have three cars flip that night. That's awful. You don't want to get anybody hurt. I stand behind our decision. It was the best thing to do. Um, but yet, um, it wasn't typical Brownstown. Typically, Brownstown, you get pulled in or you get pulled out of the pit area, and the racetrack's hard. Yeah, right, so right. It, it, it wasn't that way. I I drove our truck in and out of the pits, and the racetrack was was way soft. When we got out there for time trials and broke the track record, I thought, oh my gosh, we're gonna have a problem here. So um, that was easily one of the top five worst nights. And then um, Sharon Speedway, we had one where it was super rough. And they were going to vote to do the, the all the the whole roster of drivers wanted to come to the trailer and do show up points only. And I said, okay, but at least put on some sort of show out here for these for these fans. And they went out and like seven of the top ten pulled off on the first lap. And I thought, oh my gosh, they just straight up did not help me at all. And so that was a hard night. Uh, I had a very similar situation. Uh, another top five night would have been in February. I remember the Fayetteville night. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I guess a generic one for fifth. Open a night every year. Open a night every year is the <laughs> night the copy machine won't work, the radios won't work. All the stuff we've worked on all off season to make sure it works never works on open a night. It's the night we all have rust. Um, once you get night one out of the way, it's a whole lot easier. Hey, you know, you, you actually, I'm going to ask you something before true or false. You said something that jogged my memory about something, you know, 
this is sort of an outside looking in question. Lucas Oil recently shuts down their off-road series. They recently shut down their boat series. I think that was before the off-road series. Of course, from a late model perspective, I, I know for a fact that the late model series is, is, it is, it's wildly more popular than either one of those two were. But, you know, I think there's a lot of us in the sport that can't help but think, eh, what does this mean for the late model series? Can, can you rest our minds a little bit? Or, or what is the future of the late model series, given the things that have gone on with those other series? Yeah, and you, when, when on the surface, when you see those two series shut down, it's easy to think, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen here? But, no, it, the drag boat series race like 10 weekends a year. The off-road series race like 10 weekends a year. Their investment into that was very similar to what their investment is in the late model series. It's racing 60 times a year, and, and we're providing a lot more television coverage. And we have we have a lot of sponsorship that's just late model series uh, sponsorship help and and for all those people that are helping us and that, that's where it's going and we're very grateful that we're, they're helping us because it takes that and uh, every business has got to make sense at the end of the day including ours and what we do I mean, this is this is this is and in some ways it's big business but really it's not but yet it is a business and I feel like uh, you know because of those two entities shutting down Lucas Oil is way more invested into late model and focused uh, as this is our future. This is what we're going to do is be invested in late model racing and uh, provided the infrastructure. I mean, we're streaming every race this year. Um, they provided that infrastructure. Uh, we're going in deeper with with our television coverage and, and having more races televised. Um, we recently, in the last two years, bought a new Featherlight trailer. I mean, if we were itching to have an exit plan here, the, the, those type of things would never have happened. So, um, we're going to be around for a long time and I feel like we have a great footing in Darlene Model Racing. Uh, this is true grassroots racing. This is, this is forced. Uh, this is his uh, passion to begin with was, was grassroots racing. So, um, I think we're in a great place. East Bay is likely gone in three years. Do you want to go ahead and tell us where we're going in Florida um, to replace it? Let's break that news time right now, too. Can you do that for me? <laughs> I don't know that I can give you anything that's quick answers for any of these. But, uh, uh, no, it, here's my thoughts on East Bay. So I've told you all in, so far in this interview that Pennsboro is a place that I went to in, you know, long 25 years ago. And I still think about Pennsboro. I still remember those races people in general are reminiscent of Pennsboro and talk about how great it was. Well, let's face it. The race in there is, was awful. <laughs> it was just absolutely awful. And with that said, it still has this persona that it was fantastic and what an experience. Well, what are we going to say about East Bay? East Bay to me is easily one of the best racetracks in the country. <laughs> it's the opposite, right? The racing so, is good, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, the racing is so fantastic there. How is anything going to fill that void? If, we never, if we're no longer racing at East Bay for decades, we're always going to talk about how great East Bay was and yep. nothing's ever going to fill that void. That's so unfair for anybody to try to, to accomplish. But you have to fill so, it, Rick. we got to go somewhere, so where are we going? Yeah. Well, I, obviously, I think Golden Isles races well. I think Alltech races well, uh, and we we've had some shining light on on Bubba at uh, Ocala, and I think they're way committed to making it better and to doing what it takes to make it better. I think we're going to have to continue to cult, uh, cultivate those and, and make sure that we turn those into something. We're just we're also used to East Bay. We've conducted more races there than anywhere, and we've had 
Uh, Tampa area was a great infrastructure there. We had a you know close airport. It was cheap to fly into. We're all familiar with Brandon and the area restaurants and and what surrounds the hotels. The bay was there. It's hard to fill that. Uh, if I had a magic crystal ball, I'd like to take everything about East Bay. And they say they're going to level that place. Let's fine. I want it. Let's let's take it. Let's move <laughs> it across town somewhere and set it up again. I, I'd love to see that. Uh, so you didn't answer my question, but you did sort of hint that we're cul- I know. we're cultivating other places. I will accept that. Uh, you haven't had the Show Me 100 on Memorial Day weekend, which you know you had the Show Me in July last year. That's not really the Show Me, if I'm being honest. Back on Memorial Day weekend this year, that's going to feel good at Wheatland, isn't it? It is. It's what to me is the opening of summer. I mean, everybody goes totally and does something Memorial Day weekend, and, and it's it's the big first big weekend of the year. You know, many people have tried to host big events in the spring, and they have the success of pulling off a 50k to win the show or any sort of significance in in the spring. It's hard to do. It's the the show me starts that starts the season of that, and uh, look forward to getting there. We've we've had circumstances the last two years, and and hopefully. Hopefully we get her in this year and we we're able to have a really good event. Uh, we've put a lot into the pre-race ceremonies and then the driver introductions and um, got a lot of things up our sleeve there. So I, I look forward to the whole thing. Last question before true or false, I promise. I, I my, my wife jokes when she listens to my podcast. She's like, you always say that, and then you think of three things in your mind to ask someone. And I'm like, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. Me and Rick are close, so I'm going to have a lot to ask him. Uh, something interesting you see going on around late model racing. Um, not necessarily with Lucas. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Just something Rick Schwally, longtime dirt late model fan, looks at and goes, huh, that's kind of interesting. What is it? Yeah, well, I think... 2020 marked the year of COVID. Didn't know when we were going to race next. And then when we did get to racing, I think uh, the sentiment of most promoters was they had a fantastic year. And financially, they had great years. And I think a lot of that was set up by no competition. There was no concerts. There was no movies. There was nothing, no high school sports. And I think because of that, they want to keep riding that. And I think this year's schedules are very crowded. The sport is very crowded for Durley Motor Racing and scheduling. It's hard to reschedule anything because there's something everywhere yeah. at all times. And I think I don't wish nothing bad on any promoter, you know, doing an event, but I do think that that will happen, that we'll have events that are less than successful, not necessarily what I feel like our events will be, but as a sport, the sport will experience that and and it will time will take care of itself and and um like I said, I don't wish nothing bad on nobody, but I think that the sport will struggle through the times of everything else getting back to normal you know professional sports playing again and high school sports playing again, and all those things it all has to come back to what it was if if everything gets back to what it was. Here we go. True or false with the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series director, Rick Schwally. We end every Rigsby Report podcast, and this has been an un- un- unbelievable uh, hour and a half, Rick. I cannot thank you enough. But let's end it on a high note. True or false here? True or false? Um, first question, of course, your answers are true or false to these. You can offer a little context if you'd like, but you have to answer true or false. True or false? Your daughter, Addison, is set to begin her career in competitive cheerleading very soon. 
So true or false, the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series schedule will begin running in conjunction of major cheerleading events around America to make the travel schedule a little easier for you and Ashley. Is that true or false? No, it's absolutely true. We'll stack the deck. <laughs> a lot of Atlanta. I think Birmingham's another big cheerleading. Scene. What are you going to do, though, Rick? This is, this is going to be tough for you when she starts this process. Yeah, I have no idea. I, I love her with all my heart, and I will always do what I can do for her. So, so true. We'll make it work. This somehow. is true, guys. Get ready, JD McCready. You're going to cheerleading events. Okay, that's that's true. Uh, true or false? Your favorite pastime, and I didn't see this one coming. Your favorite pastime outside of racing is landscaping. Is that true or false? It doesn't talk back to me. That's true too. <laughs> and do you have a favorite shrub, by the way, or bush that you like to work <laughs> no, with? Is any no, of those no, no, no. or no? <laughs> No, this landscaping thing. We, we Ashley and I put an in-ground pool in our backyard because we thought we don't have the time to vacation ever. So we'll just build our own little oasis back there, and, and uh, we we put the, the pool in and put the fence in, and then all around us was all this dirt that we were going to do something with, and we started filling it with trees and, and different plants and stuff, and then hired a landscaper to help us, and that was going to be super expensive. So we eventually on more and just like anything I involve in my life I, I research and research and research and become infatuated with it I guess and then just, <laughs> you know and before you know it we're spending I don't know how much on that stuff so it's uh, proud of what it looks like a lot of back backbreaking work and um, yeah just one of those things. True or false? And I'm laughing at this one. And I want you to know these are not my words, okay? And I'm going to have a hard time getting this question out. Here's an exact quote from someone close to you. He He's so serious all the time. And I mean this in a nice way because he's one of the sweetest guys. But he looks like he's kind of got resting bitch face sometimes. <laughs> and I've been accused of this also, Rick. True or false to the potential resting bitch face that someone has accused you of? No, definitely the face. I, I, but far as far as me being in that sort of mood, I'm I'm rarely in that mood. Right. I'm not I'm not upset. I'm not mad. I'm I'm just focused. And like I've said several times here, I can't let your guard down. You always got to be expecting the unexpected. The unexpected. You got to be ready for the blind side. You got to. You're always looking at the weather. You're always dealing with track conditions. All these things is just it's uh, taxing and exhausting. So yeah. True or false? Always look like I'm in a bad mood. True or false? And I don't think you have a resting bitch face for the record. Um, serious, but not resting bitch face. True or false? Everybody knows that Steve Casebolt and you are pretty good friends, but I heard an interesting story, and you tell me if this is true or false. The first time you guys met, prior to that meeting, that his dad orchestrated, Steve's dad orchestrated, you were going to ride with the races with Casebolt and his dad in the hauler, but prior to that meeting, Casebolt actually told his dad, here's sort of another quote, man, he goes, I don't need a bunch of strangers coming around. Does this guy have to ride with us? Can we get rid of him? <laughs> Is that true or false? Your relationship with Casebolt almost was a non-starter, true or false? Uh, that'd be true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we became really good friends. He was in my wedding, I was in his, and... um yeah, like I said earlier, it was more or less just me leaving to go to all the same races he was going to and when I was driving by myself. So, 
it, it doesn't sound like he wanted you to come along, though, is what it's <laughs> in the beginning there. <laughs> it sounds like he wanted to keep you separate. Final true or false question. I was told Rick Schwally is not just a perfectionist, but I am told a psycho perfectionist on borderline, we may have a problem, perfectionism. True or false? Those are strong words. That's uh, very true. I'm, I'm, uh, the Christmas vacation quote where it says that honey, you have expectations that nobody can live up to our standards. That, that's me. Uh, Ashley tells me that all the time. So that is true. Psycho. And it that's is true. It's okay. <laughs> I've been accused of the same thing, Rick, uh, you're off the true or false hook. Uh, seriously. I know you've got a race to get ready for. We're taping this on Friday, um, up there in Iowa. I appreciate it. You took an hour and a half plus here with me. It does mean a lot. Um, you're very candid. You're very open. You were very honest with with things, and you know I don't think people always get you in that exact light, uh, just because you know you're you are serious and you're at the racetrack. So, thank you for doing this with me. I'll let you get back to it up there in Iowa, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon, bud. All right, sounds great. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. This is the point in the show where I read an ad about a company that supports us. And this week, I'm, I'm freewheeling a bit here because I just want to talk about Kaiser Manufacturing and Integra Shocks. Kaiser is without question to me, and I'm wigging, freewheeling this here, one of the most important companies in all of dirt late model racing and really short track racing for that, for that matter. You will not find a better person than Scott Kaiser. You will not find harder workers than Brian Doherty and Gary Winger, who spearhead and manage Integra Shocks for Scott, Anna, Brian's wife as well. It is a company that has supported us for nearly 15 years. And one of Scott's mottos at Kaiser is, Kaiser, yeah, we can do that. And basically what he means is they are innovative. They're creative. They think outside the box. You bring a project to them, they can do it. They are a company that you should all be doing business with, period. I am continually wowed by their team, their operation, and how Scott runs his business. And I say again, I don't just put myself out there like this for anybody. I stake my reputation and my life on Kaiser being one of the best companies in the history of the industry. How's that for an ad read? I mean every word of it. Kaiser and Integra, they they really are the best. Thank you to Rick Schwally. He handled that entire 90-plus minutes incredibly well. I threw him some curveballs, but he, he didn't bat an eye at any of them. I, I didn't know, honestly, if he was going to answer some of that. I thought he might shy away from it, but he didn't. Um, that was a look, especially at the you know the early years of Lucas Oil, that's so fascinating to me. It's an industry-defining time that I don't think we pay enough attention to, certainly on the Lucas Oil side of things, to say the least. We all talk about the outlaws in 04, but those Lucas beginning stories uh, were excellent. And then his comments on where they are with the outlaws now, on what he wants his series to be, about how he doesn't like Flow Racing Night in America. Uh, it was all just interesting stuff that I hope people really appreciate. The next Rigsby report uh, is likely in early June. We might do one on site at the Dirt Late Model Dream. I've always wanted to film one in person, and we're working out those de details right now. But our next few weeks are busy with show me stuff, uh, dream content, and build up for that. And uh, we'll be back in June, likely after the dream, as we might film one at the dream. So we're going to take a few weeks off here. Don't forget back-to-back -back weeks of Flow Racing Night in America as well. Tri-City Tuesday and then Florence the following week on Wednesday, all leading up uh, to that historic 100 at West Virginia Motor Speedway. But double dreams the week after that. All of that live on Flow Racing. You know what? If you want to watch some other late model racing, do it on uh, MAV TV Plus for Lucas Oil or do it on Dirt Vision for the Outlaws. Give our friends some shout-outs there as well. Uh, I'm Michael Rigsby. That was it for this episode of the Rigsby Report. We'll see you in a couple weeks.